At one point I was, you know, maybe one of the best Quake players in the world. Um, there's hardly a battle I haven't read, read about. So, um, I know quite a lot about life support systems because we make spaceships. Anyway, so like, I, I know a thing or two about keeping people alive in a vacuum, you know. And they, I just people yelled at me and said, I'm not a doctor. I'm like, yeah, but I do make spaceships with life support systems. What do you do? <laughs> I like that. I twiddle knobs. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Rock on. G'day. Welcome to Surfing the Discourse. This is the show where we deep dive into the conversations that are happening right now. And we try to figure out who's talking sense and who is talking nonsense. All right, today, Elon Musk we have on the show. Well, you know, he's, he's not actually on the show, but we've got clips from Elon Musk, and we are going to be analyzing the heck out of those clips, ladies and gents. So bear with me as we, uh, we get through this episode. There's a lot of ground to cover, as usual. Today, we're going to be looking into Elon Musk's hot takes on a variety of topics. We've got his incisive opinions on war and international relations. We've got his trenchant views on philosophy. And we have his hot takes on a variety of other topics. So it's going to be a variegated mixture of good stuff for us today. So we're going to be covering a couple of recent podcast appearances that Elon Musk made, specifically on the Joe Rogan podcast and also on Lex Friedman's podcast. So we will glancingly cover these other guys as well, to the extent that they say something silly that we can pounce upon. But before we get stuck into Elon himself, I reckon we should warm up with a bit of Lex Friedman. Specifically, we've got some Lex Friedman ad reads, which are always delightful to hear. He's such a romantic and like sentimental soul, right? He, he, he cannot contain his inner poet, even when he's delivering his ad reads. So let's have a little listen to what he has to say, what he has to plug, because this is sure to warm our hearts and put us in good spirits for the uh, Elon Musk analysis. All right. So first off, Lex has a watermelon drink that he wishes to plug. So here's this. My favorite flavor is watermelon salt. That's the one I'm drinking now. That's the one I've been drinking for a long time. I apologize because I'm recording these words very late at night. It's been a long day. It's been a long night before that. And uh, a long night this one. So it's just me in front of a microphone right now. Looking at a 28-ounce bottle of water that tastes like watermelon. Just me in the water. Happily reunited in the desert of human experience. Oh, man. As I said, the guy just cannot contain himself. That inner poet is just bursting through in every moment. Lovely stuff, though. Um, I'm kind of querying why he compares human experience to a desert, though. It's a... It's a curious metaphor. The desert of human experience. I'd have gone with something, I don't know, that connotes a richer experience, you know, something like a jungle or a metropolis or something. I suppose what he's doing is uh, he's thinking of like water and quenching thirst and that's made him think of desert. It's hard to really probe the depths of that man's mind. Who who knows, really? I'm certainly not highbrow and poetically inclined enough to be able to decipher his meaning. I'll, uh, I'll leave that up to 
the viewer to interpret. Now let's move on to another ad read. This one is for BetterHelp. Here we go. This episode is also brought to you by BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, help. Anytime I spell out a word, I always imagine myself spelling out that word in giant letters and sand, stranded alone on the island, looking at a airplane floating above, hoping that they see the text I write. Help. Isn't he such a dreamer? Doesn't that just warm the cockles of your heart? <laughs> Sounds kind of exhausting, to be honest. Like, every time he spells a word, he reckons he's, like, imagining himself on this island. You know, his, his eyes presumably kind of glazing over. <laughs> his smile, like, creeps onto his lips as he's, like, lost in this little dream of his. Ah, oh, such a dreamer. I'm also wondering, like... You know, it kind of makes sense when it's the word help, H-E-L-P, because it's like the prototypical word that one writes in the sand to get the attention of a plane. But he, he did specify, he said, whenever I spell a word. So I'm like, I don't know, if you're spelling, what if, what if he needs to spell the word poem, for instance? Like, does he stop what he's doing and imagine writing the word poem in the sand? And then what? <laughs> what is that? What does that pilot think when he reads the word poem as he coasts by? I don't know. We may never know the answer to these questions, unfortunately. Okay, moving on once again. Well, now we're going to an ad for Simply Safe, which is some kind of security company, I believe. This show is also brought to you by Simply Safe. And as we go on with this program, I'm starting to have more and more fun. Because fun is all you need. Simply Safe is a home security company. After, of course, you establish security. Once you're safe, then the fun can begin. These ad reads I find are largely an exercise in contrived, awkward segues. He's trying to like find a way to start with a notion that's very like Lex-like, something like fun, or love, or beauty, and then he's going to try to link it in this very contrived way to whatever he's plugging. Anyway, that ad continues. Uh, for me, Simply Safe just establishes that first base layer of physical security. It's super easy to set up. They have a cool new feature called Fast Protect Monitoring that allows Simply Safe monitoring agents to see, speak to, and deter intruders through the smart alarm indoor camera. Okay, so these monitoring agents have access to Lex's indoor camera. <laughs> wow. I feel like I probably wouldn't feel totally secure or safe or comfortable if that was the case for my house. That's just my personal taste. I probably wouldn't want operators like peering into my my house. But I don't know, maybe maybe I'm I've got that wrong. It sounds weird though. Okay, another ad here. This is Lex plugging Shopify, the website slash software, I guess, that allows you to set up online stores. It took me minutes, maybe even seconds, to set up a store and uh, sell shirts. Minutes, maybe even seconds. Goodness me, Lex Friedman, like everybody, he can set up an online store in seconds. Seconds, That's so less than a minute. Let's, let's say it took him 50 seconds to set up his online store selling shirts. That is remarkable, I can tell you, because I've set up an online store in the past, and it took me, goodness me, it took me days. I had to you know, figure out what my products were, to list the products, 
get all the photos sorted. Have to like edit the web page to get it looking how you want it, make your logo, all this kind of stuff. But Lex can do that in less than a minute. The guy is an absolute savant. But anyway, the ad continues. Which you can now buy at, I think the link is lexfreedom.com slash store. That forwards you to the Shopify store with three different shirts. In this case, it's not really about the store. It's about just um, celebrating stuff we love. Okay, so he said... It's not really about the store. It's about celebrating things you love. I'm wondering what he means when he says it's not really about the store. My guess is, this is the only thing that kind of makes sense. My guess is he means it's not really about making money. It's not really about uh, my profit. It's about celebrating things you love, which seems fairly disingenuous to me. Um, I should also point out that if you go on that website, the shirts are, you know, the website's pretty bad. It's like very low effort. Yeah, maybe he did set it up in less than a minute and the the shirts cost bloody 50 dollars new zealand 50 new zealand dollars before shipping uh that seems expensive to me um i'm not normally one to buy shirts online but that seems exorbitant that seems like daylight robbery but it's not about the store it's not about making money is it it's about uh celebrating things you love and it's going to cost you 50 new zealand dollars plus shipping all right Let's leave Lex alone for now. Let's leave him sipping his watermelon drinks and daydreaming about desert islands as security guards gawp at him through his uh, security cameras. And we'll move on to the main event. Lex was just a sideshow here. We're going to move now on to Elon Musk. So who is this Elon Musk fellow anyway? When he first kind of sidled his awkward way into the onto the public stage, I was led to believe, and I think many other people were as well, that he was some kind of super genius. He's supposed to be like this real-life Tony Stark figure. And then over time, it started to become clear that these claims about his genius may have been somewhat overstated. So nowadays, you're just as likely to hear people arguing that he's a complete moron as you are to hear them arguing that he's a genius. And people who take this perspective generally will point out that there are big question marks around his role in founding the companies that sort of launch him into fame and fortune, Um, PayPal and Tesla. They'll point out that uh, his role might have been overstated. And they'll also point out his many subsequent business kind of follies and misadventures, like his seat of the pants management of Twitter. But... The claim that he's a total imbecile, that can't really be true either, right? You don't end up in his position owning several high-impact companies without at least a modest amount of neurons rattling around in your noggin. But at the same time, we needn't think that he's any kind of savant. And as we'll see, a lot of what he says in the clips that I'm going to be showing today seem to pretty definitively refute that idea. But Musk is a multi-dimensional man. It's not just all about his intellect. We can analyze some other aspects of his character here. So before we get into the analysis of some of his takes to see whether they stand up to scrutiny, we'll take a bit of a detour to examine some of his other character traits. So the first thing to point out, and you've probably noticed this if you've seen any of Elon Musk, is that he has a fairly uh, adolescent sense of humor and a kind of moral unseriousness. And in the two podcasts that I'm covering today, there there was no shortage of clips to showcase this. So let's run through a few of these. 
First of all, here he is on the Joe Rogan episode when the subject of Hamas comes up. That's the terrorist group that launched the recent savage attack against Israel. So listen to Musk's response to hearing about Hamas. People I mean, I, know I, say, that I find now. the New York Times these days to be hard to read. Well, th- unfortunately, they make some grave errors. Yeah. Like that Hamas bombing the... the, uh, Hamas? the, the, the No. <laughs> the yeah, uh, I mean, Israeli bombing the hospital chickpeas? story. Yes. It's delicious. <laughs> I mean, that... I think that, we should cut off chickpea uh, exports. That'll... that'll Bring them to the knees right away. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Take a chip and dip it in nothing? All right, we've just seen where Elon Musk's mind automatically goes when confronted with the topic of Hamas. Let's see if he does any better when the conversation turns to another jihadist group, the Taliban. But the Taliban is on Twitter, right? Like I always think of like... Hey, Mr. Taliban, telling me a banana. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mr. Taliban. I mean, there, but there's definitely some people on Twitter um, that are. Daylight coming, I want to go. Yeah. Um, All right, you're starting to get the measure of the man. Now here he is amusing himself by calling Mark Zuckerberg a chicken. There's this ongoing feud between the two in which they're both saying publicly that they'll, they're prepared to fight each other in some kind of cage match. And in this podcast, Elon Musk says that he's prepared to fight any time, anywhere, under any rules, and he proceeds to <laughs> intimate that Mark Zuckerberg is a chicken. Fire. No, I mean, he's chicken out. What? That's a... I don't think he's chicken out. Yeah, no, he's chicken out. Do you think so? Yeah. Puck, puck, puck. Well, maybe puck, he's puck, listening. Puck. Suck, listening. suck, suck. Suck, suck, suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go to him into fighting using taunts. It might work. Yeah. I mean, somehow or another, you got him to agree in the first place. (laughs) I was stunned. Surely he will respond to a taunt like that. Yeah, surely. (laughs) I mean, how can he resist? How can he resist? resist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I actually want to come to Mark Zuckerberg's defense a little bit here because so they, they initially were looking to fight. And it seemed by all appearances that it was Elon Musk that was making excuses and not wanting to fight. And you can tell like Joe Rogan is skeptical too because he was aware of how it actually went down. And so he's kind of like half-heartedly calling Elon out, but not really because he always goes along with what Elon says. He'd never dare to gainsay Elon in any circumstance, which is something that I'll look at later on. But anyway, continuing with Musk's sense of humor... Uh, here he is talking about some video game on the Lex Friedman podcast. Um, right now, I think the most powerful character in this in the seasonal realm is the sorcerer with the lightning balls. Uh-huh. So the, the sorks have huge balls in um, the seasonal. Well, yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> so, so, sorks have huge balls. Um, they do. Uh, huge balls of lightning. Um, I'll take your word for it. All right, and one more clip of Musk's dubious sense of humor. Here he is as him and Joe, they go about ordering a pizza, and Musk proceeds to start cracking himself up at the thought that the pizza company might ejaculate on the pizza, I guess. Uh, and note here more of Joe's forced laughter. Tell I mean, him to find a good spot and tell him it's for us. They'll, they'll cook it up. 
Uh, if they if they won't, if they don't won't, just on the pizza. All tell right. them we'll, we'll mention their name. <laughs> tell them we'll mention their name on the podcast. <laughs> don't tell them it's us. Yeah, if, <laughs> tell them it's us. Fuck it. If they're gonna close, tell them we'll, we'll mention their like, name. What, what is this? What is this salty sauce that's so mysterious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Right, don't tell them it's us. Good call. Yeah, don't tell them it's us. Make what? sure you don't buy it from any liberals. What, what, what is the salty, tangy substance? Don't buy on it the... from East Austin. <laughs> <laughs> don't buy it from anyone who still wears a mask. <laughs> There's a lot of them out there. Okay, so it's pretty clear he has a schoolyard sense of humor, which you might think is just a harmless quirk, except that it routinely leads him to do harmful or stupid stuff. Like there's a litany of examples of this kind of thing. There's the tweet he made where he made like a 420 joke about Tesla's stock price, which led people to invest under the false impression that it was about to jump in value. Um, There's a time he called somebody pedo man when he had spurned Musk's help in that Thai cave rescue situation. Musk offered to to send along a a little submarine thing to help and... Since that wasn't at all going to work, they he was told as much. And so in response, Musk called the guy who said his help wasn't needed pedo man, or pedo guy, I think it was, actually. Um, and there's another instance of Elon Musk's immaturity leading to trouble. I'll play this, I'll play this clip here. This came after some advertisers on Twitter had pulled out or, like, paused their advertising after Musk got himself in hot water by replying to a tweet that was construed as anti-Semitic, probably was anti-Semitic, I guess. So here's how Musk responded to these advertisers pulling back. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey. Okay, so not only is this immature as hell, it's also incredibly stupid. Like, <laughs> these are massive corporations concerned only about their profit, Elon. Like, they're not out to blackmail you. <laughs> it's not personal. It's, a, it's pretty, a pretty straightforward business decision on their part. Like, they can't be seen to support you or Twitter amid the blowback, the very current blowback for what has been construed as anti-Semitism on your part. It's nothing personal. It's so weird that he's he's responding this way. It's so childish. And I'm sure his fellow stakeholders in Twitter would not be <laughs> would not be particularly impressed with that behavior. Alright, we'll move on now to another rather unflattering character trait that is pretty salient in Elon which is his constant self-promotion. So he's always trying to make sure you you know just how smart and how talented he is. And this self, this kind of self-promotion comes in a variety of forms, some less subtle than others. So here, here are some examples of the less subtle forms. So this clip is from Elon Musk uh, at a TED conference. Take a listen to this. At this point, I think I know more about manufacturing than anyone currently alive on Earth. Tweet that. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, yeah, so not so subtle. And also from the podcast that I'm going to be covering, the Lex and the Joe podcast he did recently, there's a few examples of this kind of thing. Here he is talking about his extensive knowledge of battles. I love war history. I like inside out and backwards. Um, there's hardly a battle I haven't read, read about. Okay, I decided to check roughly how many battles are sort of known about by historians. Seeing so There's a Wikipedia page, list of battles, sorted in alphabetical order. And I'm kind of... I'm kind of doubtful a little bit that there's hardly a battle that he hasn't read about because um, uh, let's just go down this list a little bit. Start with the A's. The Battle of Aachen, the Battle of Abensburg, the Battle of Abbeville, the Battle of Abukur, the Battle of Abu Clay, the Battle of Aklia, the Battle of Akragas, the Battle of Acre. There's three Battles of Acre. <laughs> the Battle of Admin Box. The Battle of Acro Acroinon. I mean, come on, we, we, we're barely we've barely started on the A's here. <laughs> but all right, he's being hyperbolic. He knows he's read about a lot of battles. We'll, we'll grant him that. But uh, yeah, be careful in your hyperbole. I would say, especially if you're boasting, because people will call you out on that. All right, and here's another one. This one is him boasting about his gaming nous. At one point, I was. You know, maybe one of the best Quake players in the world. Yeah, so it's not limited to just, like, knowledge or smarts, anything intelligent. He's also, like, a, an incredibly talented gamer, if you didn't realize. One of the best Quake players in the world. It's funny because he goes on to talk about how he was in, like, tournaments, and he says there that he was the second best player in his team, <laughs> and that his team didn't actually win because the first best player wasn't uh, was sick or something. And so it's like, really? So you were the you weren't even the best player in your team, and your team didn't even win the competition. It's like, come on, dude, come on, dude. All right, maybe you were an exceptionally talented player, but come on, don't go, don't go saying you're one of the best in the world. Just, just be a little humble, bro. Be a little humble. Okay, and. In his conversation with Joe Rogan, as we're going to see it a little bit later, he goes on and on about how much he knows about ventilators, of all things, how much expertise he has there. So we'll see that a little bit later. All right, so there are all examples of Musk being explicit in his posturing, but he can be slightly more subtle. So what he does sometimes is he presents well-worn ideas as if they were something that he personally just came up with. So he does this frequently. Here's a quick example of that. So here he is with a profoundly original insight about how uh, Instagram in particular and social media might actually be bad for us in some ways. Hmm, who would have thought? Here, listen to this. You know, I, I, I am concerned that, like, like, say, Instagram actually leads to uh, more unhappiness, not, not less, um, in the sense that, like, it just looks like everyone's, like, like having a great time right. and is way better looking than they really are. Yeah. And so you're like, man, everyone's like good looking and having a great time. And and then uh, you sort of compare yourself to that and like it's like, damn, I, I'm not as good looking and I'm not, I, just, <laughs> I, I, I just seem to be sad a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, man, uh, you know, I think I think it could make you kind of depressed. Shit, you might be right about that, guys. Can we get someone to look into this? sadly neglected topic of uh, the potential harms of Instagram. <laughs> Goodness me. 
So yeah, he, he presents it as though it's something that he came up with. I mean, maybe that's me reading into it, but the fact that he does it, he seems to do this all the time, and we'll see more examples later. And the fact that it's consistent with his more explicit self-promotion makes it pretty clear that that is what he's trying to do. He's trying to show off his knowledge and his uh, incisive intellect. But yeah, we'll see some more examples of that later. But now we are going to commence analyzing some of Elon Musk's hot takes. Okay, so first up, we've got Musk propounding a particular theory, which pertains to Twitter. So he claims that before he bought it, Twitter was run by a death cult. So I also want to highlight this whole spiel as another example of Musk's self-promotion. So Joe asks him what led him to buy Twitter. And what follows is a florid and completely outrageous attempt to paint Twitter as essentially an existential threat to humanity. So he's going to paint this whole situation of him buying Twitter as a purely humanitarian selfless act where essentially he was saving the world. He neglects to mention that he tried to pull out of the Twitter buy, presumably once he saw how bad of a business investment it was. But, you know, that's conveniently left out of the picture here. So here, here we go. Let's play the first clip of that. What was it ultimately that led you to make the decision to do it? I mean, this is going to sound uh, somewhat melodramatic, but I was worried about that, that it was having a corrosive effect on civilization, uh, that it was uh, just having a bad, a bad impact. Um, and um, I think part of it is that it, it's, where, it's where it was located, which is uh, you know, downtown San Francisco. Um, and while I, I think San Francisco is a beautiful city and, and we should really fight hard to um, kind of right the ship of San Francisco. If you've walked around downtown San Francisco, right near the ex-FKA Twitter headquarters, it's a zombie apocalypse. I mean, it's rough. Have you, have you been, been in that area? Not lately. No. Yeah. I've heard. It's crazy. I've heard it's crazy. I've heard you, you really can't believe it until you actually go there. You can't believe it until you go there. So now you have to say, well, what philosophy led to that outcome? And that philosophy was being piped to Earth. So, um, you know, a philosophy that would be ordinarily quite niche and geographically constrained, so that that the sort of the fallout uh, area would be limited, um, was effectively given an information a weapon, um, a te- uh, information technology weapon to propagate uh, what is essentially a mind virus to the rest of Earth. Um, and the outcome of that mind virus is very clear if you walk around the streets of downtown San Francisco. It is the end of civilization. Okay, so let me try to break down his argument here. It's not totally clear from that clip, uh, perhaps, but he does go on to expand on it later in the podcast. So this is what I've kind of managed to distill out of what I think he is saying. So he's saying that there is a far left ideology or mind virus in San Francisco in particular which he regards as the main cause of San Francisco's like epidemic of crime and homelessness and drug abuse. And he's saying that the creators of tech companies like Twitter are not themselves far left, but since they're located in San Francisco, they are essentially infiltrated by far left ideologues who sought to use 
Twitter as a technology weapon to beam their ideology across the planet, thus imperiling it and helping to corrode civilization itself, as he said. And so the, the, normally the, the effects, the negative effects of a far-left ideology that is, would be geographically limited to a 10-mile radius. That's like not, it's small, like the, so, so any, any bad effects of that ideology would be geographically constrained under normal circumstances and have been in the past. But when you have uh, basically a, technolo- a technological megaphone, which, which was Twitter and, and social media in general, suddenly the, the far left are handed a megaphone to earth. A, a, a te- a, an incredibly powerful technology weapon that they themselves could not create, but they happened to be co-located with the technologists who created it. Okay, so it's not exactly clear how the far-left people managed to infiltrate Twitter and then presumably bend its policies to their will, <laughs> I guess right under the nose of the technologists who created it, including Jack Dorsey, who was the founder, I guess. And a couple of other things in Musk's narrative here are far from clear. So what exactly is this corrosive ideology and how does it spread like a virus? Especially if it's as bad as he claims. Like, is it really just going to take root wherever people hear it? It's also not clear how much of San Francisco's woes can rightfully be blamed on far-left policies. Which, by the way, this is not a charge that Musk has come up with personally. It's very popular on the right wing to blame uh, San Francisco's homelessness and drug problems uh, on left-wing policies. But, you know, San Francisco's the second most expensive city in America after New York, and that is owing partly to the surge in demand for housing there that came with the tech boom, right? So as all the tech people started pouring into Silicon Valley, that drove house prices up even further than they already were. And so you'd think that might have a little something to do with the homelessness problem and by extension then the drug problem. So it is true, though, that California has been apparently quite lax on certain crimes. So they recently raised the threshold for what counts as a felony. And so this this was in something called Proposition 47. And it seems plausible that this contributes to the high rates of theft in San Francisco. But do these policies arise from like a far-left mind virus? Because as I understand it, the logic of this policy is to try to reduce the prison population, for especially for like petty crimes, theft and things. Because the prisons were brimming with people in there for theft and drug possession, which led to overcrowding and cost a hell of a lot of money. So one goal of these kind of policies is to take the money that you save by not imprisoning so many people and redirect it to programs that hopefully can address some of the root causes of these kinds of crime. So even if the net effect of this policy turns out to be negative in the end, it still sounds to me like hard-headed policymaking as opposed to you know the effect of some mind virus. It's just addling people's brains on the left. I don't know. So... Again, it's not totally clear what Elon Musk has in mind when he says all this stuff. And that's just because he's so vague in how he argues these things. And this is something that I find he's frequently doing. Like he's just, when he's presenting an opinion, he's so often like presenting a very vague, low resolution picture of something. And so, you know, as I try to analyze them, I have to first interpret what he means. And that can be difficult. It's like there's multiple possible interpretations and Sometimes you can find an interpretation where it's like, okay, it kind of makes sense. 
But the fact that he's being so loose and vague with his arguments kind of makes it almost meaningless. So yeah, it's possible that in many of these cases where he does this, that he does have in mind something sensible and just prefers to hover at an abstract level of detail. But it is also eminently possible that his ideas just are superficial and muddle-headed. So for example, like maybe all of this talk of mind viruses and the weaponization of Twitter is just deliberate hyperbole and that it actually has a more sensible interpretation. But no, that's, that's clearly not the case. So listen to this next clip as Musk essentially starts riffing off of something that Joe said and showing that his ideas are anything but nailed down on this topic. He's just like latching on to something that Joe said, which is going to sort of help make the vague case that Twitter was bad and Twitter was like, yeah, prior to him buying it, was this destructive force. And so he had to step in. So listen to this. I don't think you're melodramatic at all. I, I, I think it's a, it's a, I mean, I don't want to be melodramatic, but it's almost like a death cult. It's a death cult. No, it, no, it, it, that is exactly right. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's essentially the uh, extinctionists. Like it's in the limit, it is that they're propagating uh, the extinction of humanity and civilization. Um, and, and there's some people who are, are like most most of the time it, it's it's implicit. They don't explicit, but sometimes it's explicit. Like there was a guy on the front page of the New York Times uh, who literally has the thing called the extinctionist movement, um, and he was quoted on the front page of the New York Times as saying, uh, "There are eight billion people on the world, but it would be better if there were none." Ooh. And I'm like, "Well, buddy, you can start with yourself." Yeah. Um, yeah, so see how quickly he flipped his stance here? He's no longer talking about far-left policies and their connection to crime and drug use. He seized on what Joe said and started accusing people in the tech world of being pro-extinction. Pro-extinction. Pretty dramatic, all right? So according to Musk here, this incredibly niche ideology, which you would only tend to hear about in the context of people like incredulously mocking it, has supposedly taken root in these tech companies and poses a real existential threat to humanity. So this kind of loose and careless thinking should start to give us a, a good impression of how Musk's brain works. Okay, while we're on this topic, listen to this clip here. So this is Elon talking about extreme environmentalism, which is more or less what motivates the extinctionists. So here's this clip. I mean, I'm pro-environment, but the, 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 in the limit, uh, if, you go, if, if you take environmentalism to an extreme, you start to view humanity as a plague on the surface of the earth, like a, like a mold or something. Right. Hmm, humanity as a mold on earth. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've heard this somewhere. Actually, yeah, let me dig up this clip of Joe Rogan saying exactly that. And I think if you were an intelligent life form from another planet and you were looking at the Earth, you wouldn't see individual people. You wouldn't see housekeepers and limo drivers and stand-up comedians. You wouldn't see that. You would see mold on a sandwich. Yes, I thought that was, that was interesting. Joe Rogan, of course, didn't step in after Musk said that and defend that perspective. To be fair, maybe he's abandoned it. That clip of Joe was from, I don't know, 10 plus years ago. So, you know, maybe he's uh, evolved beyond that way of thinking. <laughs> okay, so anyway, according to Musk, he bought Twitter because it posed an existential threat. It was a technology weapon that spread a far-left mind virus. 
it was run by extinctionists, I guess, and for good measure, here he is now saying that it was also a propaganda mill for the government. So he's he's really uh, throwing everything he can at this old Twitter. No, I, I mean, old all, all Twitter was basically an arm of the government. Yeah. The degree, yeah, the, the degree to which, and, and by, by the way, Jack didn't really know know this, but the degree to which Twitter was simply um, an arm of the government was not well understood by the public. And uh, it, it was, there was no, it was whatever the official government, I mean, it was like Pravda, basically. Um, you know, it's a state publication is the way to think of old Twitter. It was a state publication. Right. So I think I can speak for everyone when I say thank you, Elon, for saving us from this far left weapon of extinctionism slash government propaganda. (laughs) What a hero. Um, All right. So let's leave politics behind for just a moment and we'll test Musk's mettle on some popular philosophy topics. So first up, we have some of his views on the topic of consciousness. Well, some people would quote like a like a soul, you know, in religion yeah, soul. a soul. Um, like you feel like you're you, right? I mean, you don't feel like you're just a collection of atoms. But on what dimension does thought exist? What dimension does do emotions exist? We feel them very strongly. Um, I suspect there's more to it than atoms bumping into atoms. Okay, so what he's getting at here is a very prominent idea in philosophy and in cognitive science which is called the hard problem of consciousness. Basically, it is the seemingly impossible problem of explaining how physical stuff, so particles bumping into each other, the stuff that comprises your brain, can possibly give rise to subjective experience. So like, how can the flow of particles in your brain produce the felt sensation of pain, or how can it produce the experience of the color blue? This is a big mystery, big problem. It's called the hard problem because it seems like these things just cannot be reconciled, the physical world with the subjective world. And Musk talks about this without naming the problem or mentioning that it's like widely debated. He kind of speaks as though it's something he just thought of himself. So that's another example of him being subtly self-promotional, perhaps. But that wouldn't be so bad, except that he also butchers his explanation in a way that kind of indicates that he hasn't totally understood it, I think. So listen to this next clip. Yeah. What is consciousness? Like, what are, when you put the atoms in a particular shape, why are they able to form thoughts mm-hmm. and take actions that, and, and feelings? All right. So he's wondering how atoms, physical stuff, can, one, form thoughts, and two, take actions— And then as an afterthought, he kind of adds three that they can have feelings. So he's wondering why atoms can form thoughts, take actions, and have feelings. But the first two, thoughts and actions, are actually not part of the hard problem of consciousness. And so they're completely unlike the third one, having feelings, which is essentially what the hard problem is all about. Like it's actually not at all mysterious, at least in the same way, how atoms can produce actions. So like, of course, physical matter can mediate physical actions. And even thoughts are something that we can more or less understand in terms of computation, which can be cashed out in physical terms. So it's only the subjective dimension of these things that nobody can seem to provide a satisfying explanation for. So basically, the upshot is, if Musk knew what the hell he was talking about here, I think he would make these distinctions clear. And if he wasn't such a showboat, he would probably have mentioned the fact that this is like a well-known and widely discussed problem. 
All right, but he has more to say about consciousness. So in this clip, he's going to raise another common idea, again, as though he's just thought of it. (laughs) And he's going to butcher this one too. So what he's going to talk about is basically what is called panpsychism. And it's a trendy position or view or theory that seeks to explain the hard problem of consciousness by saying that consciousness is like an inherent property of matter. Like all matter is imbued with consciousness in some way. So some people are convinced that this solves the hard problem because it seems maybe like it can explain how physical matter can give rise to subjective experience, i.e. because that physical matter has subjective experience contained within it or something. But anyway, here's Musk alluding to that theory in a characteristically vague and self-referential way. Um, and that sometimes I wonder is, you know, either perhaps everything's conscious or nothing is conscious. Um, one of the two. Okay, so the dichotomy that he's presented here is completely bogus. He's saying he's given us two possibilities, that either everything is conscious or nothing is conscious. But there is also a third possibility, which is that some things are conscious, like humans and other animals. And this is probably the dominant position among philosophers, so it's weird that he asserts a dichotomy that excludes that position. But even worse is the fact that his earlier comments actually show that he subscribes more to the third possibility, which is that some things are conscious. So earlier he he talked about how when atoms are put into a particular shape, they can form thoughts and actions and, and have feelings, which means that he himself seems to take the view that consciousness arises from certain arrangements of matter. So when he says that either everything is conscious or nothing is conscious, he's excluding that possibility, which apparently he also subscribes to based on his comments. Okay, so my read here is that this is just Elon trying to sound smart about an esoteric subject, which he in fact understands poorly. And this is something that he does all the time, speaking fairly ineptly on topics about which he clearly knows very little. Um, Sticking with the general topic of philosophy, here he is talking ineptly about the problem of free will, which is another major area of debate in philosophy. So I'll just give a brief overview of the problem for anyone that hasn't heard of it, so that we can understand what Musk is getting wrong about it. Okay, so basically there is this debate about whether or not humans can have free will, i.e. whether they can make free choices and perform free actions, let's say, to put it roughly. So given the fact that the universe is what we call deterministic, there is this debate about whether humans can have free will. Now, what does it mean for the universe to be deterministic? In a nutshell, saying that the universe is deterministic is basically saying that it's like clockwork that the stuff that makes up the universe moves and changes over time in a predetermined way, like the parts of like a mechanical clock, say. Now, one side of the debate says that you and your thoughts and your actions are just like cogs in that clockwork, that you're kind of caught in the mechanical flow of the universe, and so it doesn't make sense to say that you're choosing your own actions. So just as a stick caught in a current of a river doesn't control its own movements, neither do you. And the other side of the debate argues that it still makes sense to say that we have free will, even though the universe is like clockwork. Okay, so in this clip, Elon is going to introduce another well-trodden philosophical idea, which is that our universe might be a simulation, like literally in the computer 
of some higher beings where our universe is being simulated. Uh, if you haven't heard this idea before, it's not quite as silly as it sounds, although in my view it still is silly. It's just not super easy to show why it's silly. Uh, but anyway, here's Elon with a dubious philosophical take here in which he's going to claim essentially that if we are in a simulation, then we must have free will. So here he is with this. Maybe an interesting answer to the question of determinism versus free will is that if we are in a simulation, the reason that the, the, these higher beings would hold a simulation is to see what happens. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, um, they don't know what happens. Uh, otherwise they wouldn't hold the simulation. So whoever created this existence, um, is they're running it because they don't know what's going to happen, not because they do. Okay, so again, I have to kind of draw out his meaning because he's not very good at articulating his point. Um, but what I think he's saying is this. He's saying that if we are in a simulation, it's because the beings that are running it can't predict how the simulation will unfold. So if, it's, if that's true, if they can't predict how our universe would unfold, then that means that we have free will because our actions are unpredictable and that means they're not like clockwork. We are freely making choices, I guess. The problem with this argument is that it's completely and utterly stupid. Just because you can't predict something doesn't mean that there's anything non-deterministic happening. So when a roulette wheel is spun, for example, it's more or less impossible in practice to predict where the ball is going to end up. There's just too many variables. This obviously doesn't mean that the ball is like exerting free will. So Musk's idea that unpredictability implies free will is dumb. Again, it sounds to me more like posturing on Elon's part. Uh, But again, I'm not 100% sure if I'm interpreting his argument correctly because he's once again being vague and imprecise. All right, moving on. Let's hear some of Musk's takes on war. Check out what Musk has to say about the Ukraine situation. You know, it's sort of like, is this saying about, like this this saying comes from World War I, it's like young boys who don't know each other killing each other on behalf of old men that do know each other. What the hell's the point of that? Yes, Elon. Everybody understands that war is wasteful and tragic. You're preaching to the choir. But this kind of sentimental talk is, in this case, worse than naive. Because it actually paints a false equivalence between the Ukrainians and the Russians. It suggests that they're both engaged in like pointless warfare. But on the Ukrainian side, it's not pointless at all. They're defending themselves against a brutal aggressor. And they and all the countries supporting them, like the US, are trying to ensure that Russia is deterred from trying this again in the future, uh, along with any other countries that might have an eye to aggressively seizing other nations. So yeah, no, it's it's not pointless at all on the Ukrainian side. So that sentimental take of Musk's there is just annoying. But admittedly, that is just my opinion on it. But yeah, Elon further drives home his naivety in this next clip. So Volodymyr Zelensky said that he's not, or has said in the past, he's not interested in talking to Putin directly. Do you think he should yeah. sit down, man to man, leader to leader, and negotiate peace? Look, I think I would just recommend do not send the flower of Ukrainian youth to be, to die uh, in trenches. Uh, whether he talks to Putin or not, just don't do that. Okay, so what does he want them to do? Not defend themselves? Like not go in the trenches and defend themselves? 
Like, not to belabor this point, but this is not how you deal with militant aggressors like Putin. <laughs> like, what, refusing to fight back? Again, that just sounds like more idealistic sentiment and not something that's actually practicable in this case. So, yeah. Right, now let's jump over to a different topic. This one is more squarely in the culture wars battleground. COVID. So Elon and Joe Rogan discussed the apparently ill-fated use of masks and ventilators during the pandemic. So we'll start off with some clips from Joe. Here's Joe commenting on masks. There's yeah. a lot of them out there. They're still masked up. It's wild. Yeah, once in a while I see someone paranoid. I'm like... On um, the street? Yeah. I saw a guy on the street the other day just walking around with a mask on. I'm like, okay, buddy. You look like you're about 28 years old. Yeah. I think you're going to be okay. You're okay, yeah. You're probably not going to be okay breathing that fucking same air in that mask and all the bacteria you're spitting out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so the suggestion here, I guess, is that you might be uh, infecting yourself with your own <laughs> your own air. But if you're breathing the air out, then whatever the infectious agent is was already in your lungs, right? It was already in your mouth. So you're already infected by it. It's already done its damage, presumably. So, yeah, that is a silly point. Sorry, Joe. All right, here's another. Yeah. It's attaching to that cloth. Yeah, it, it, it's it, masks are not like some uh, magic uh, health shield. Um, I mean, there are, are times where you know masks are warranted. Like if a surgeon is operating on you or whatever, then you don't want the surgeon spitting in your wound. You know, of course. Um, but uh, most of the time, a, a mask is not good for you. Yeah, and, if you uh, can breathe out of it, that means you can. You're, you're breathing in. That means you're yeah. also exhaling. So, like, how much is it filtering? Like, what is it? What it, it, particles? It's, it's like Oh, good God. Come on. Joe's been on this hobby horse for years now. He's been bashing masks since the start of COVID, pretty much. And he still hasn't got the very basics right. Like, this is elementary shit. He's, like, questioning the efficacy of masks, saying, well, look, if you can breathe at all, that means you must be breathing in the harmful, the COVIDs or whatever. It's like, dude, air can move across the barrier of the mask, but the mask catches larger particles okay how are you making that point so incompetently all these years later especially given how stridently he's been arguing against masks like all this time it's like come on at least know the basics joe jesus christ okay now we'll listen to musk talking about how ventilators these are the machines that breathe for people whose lungs were severely affected by covid he's going to argue that they probably did more harm than good Okay, and also note throughout these clips that I'm going to play how many times Elon points out how much he knows about this issue, how much of an authority he is on it. Okay, so here's the first one. Um, and, and a lot of deaths got ascribed to COVID that had nothing to do with COVID. And in fact, I'd say in the beginning, um, the cure is worse than the disease. So, uh, because people panic too much. And so that somebody would um, get diagnosed with COVID, they put them on an uh, intubated vent ventilator for a week, and this is going to basically cook your lungs. So if, you, if, you, if you're on Puro 2 um, under pressure with a, a tube stuck down your throat um, and under anesthetic, this is, this is very bad for you. Like it's one thing if you do that for a couple hours for an operation, but you do that for a week, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to roast your lungs. Like the, what the air that we're breathing right now is 78% is nitrogen, 1% argon, about 21% oxygen. 
Okay, from here he starts pontificating about partial pressures and stuff, like technical stuff, just, I guess, to flaunt his engineering knowledge. It's not really super relevant to what he's saying here. It's just to let you know that he's an authority on this. <laughs> All right, so, okay, it continues. So, um, I know quite a lot about life support systems because we make spaceships, and there's, you have to keep people alive in a vacuum. So you got to say, okay, what percentage nitrogen, what percentage oxygen you can do, what's the pressure going to be? Anyway, so like, I, I know a thing or two about keeping people alive in a vacuum, you know. Um, right. So Okay, that's two times he's asserted that he's knowledgeable here. Um, you know, we designed the life support system for keeping humans alive in a vacuum, in the vacuum of space, which is very difficult. Um, so we, we know quite a lot about um, what it takes to keep people alive. That's three times. So you don't want, do not want to be, be people, um, you know, 100% oxygen. This actually, for, for an extended period of time, this is not good for you. Well, or, 80% of the people they put on ventilators died. Yeah. So, in fact, I, I actually posted about that. Okay, yes, if that's true, 80% of the people on ventilators died, that alone doesn't imply that ventilators do more harm than good. Right, Because the thing is, doctors try to only put people on ventilators when they would otherwise die. So really anything less than 100% death is like positive, assuming that doctors are using ventilators appropriately. In fact, I, I actually posted about that because um, I, I called doctors in Wuhan and said, what are the biggest mistakes that you made on the first wave? This was early on. And they said, we put far too many people on intubated ventilators. So then I, st- I actually posted on Twitter at the time and said, hey, uh, I'm, what I'm hearing from Wuhan is that they made a big mistake in putting people uh, on intubated ventilators for an extended period. Um, and that this, this is actually what is damaging the lungs, not COVID. It's the treatment. It's, the cure is worse than the disease. And they, I, just people yelled at me and said, I'm not a doctor. I'm like, yeah, but I do make spaceships with life support systems. What do you do? <laughs> I like that. I'll twiddle knobs. I'm like, yeah. okay, great. Yeah. Rock on. Okay, so that's four times he's bragged about his knowledge on stuff related to ventilators, I guess. Okay, so I'll link in the show notes an article which I read that kind of deconstructs Elon Musk's points here and arguments that he's made elsewhere about ventilators. But from that article, here's a quote from a cardiologist commenting on Elon Musk's thoughts here. Quote, Elon Musk might think that ITUs, I think that's maybe intensive treatment units, are blindly setting everybody to high pressures and oxygen settings, but being an intensivist is about making tiny adjustments, watching, waiting, adjusting again, being aggressive in your conservatism, and doing your utmost to do as little as you can to the patient. The idea that Elon has of doctors turning the ventilator up to 11 and just walking off is nonsense. Okay, so as you'd expect, the actual medical professionals who are administering this treatment know what they're doing they're not just using it dangerously and recklessly um to give you more of a sense of how out of his depth elon is on this subject he once made a tweet and he since deleted it saying that ventilators shouldn't go much above the patient's natural lung pressure but here are some responses to this claim from cardiologists who are familiar with how these systems work quote it doesn't make any sense in health normal thoracic pressures are negative you increase your chest volume to suck air in. All modern ventilation is positive pressure and so is way, quote, above normal. And another quote from a different cardiologist, quote, it's literally impossible to ventilate anyone without going above their intrinsic lung pressure. 
Okay, so yeah, Musk deleted that tweet, I guess, because he realized that it didn't make much sense. Okay, so a couple more points of discussion here. So one thing that I can perhaps find some common ground with Elon on is from their chat about the Twitter files. Okay, so Joe and Elon had a bit of a chat, as you would expect, about Twitter files. For anyone who doesn't remember, these were the documents that were released after Elon brought Twitter. They were sort of internal Twitter documents which supposedly revealed a lot of jiggery-pokery by the Twitter people and supposedly revealed unseemly collusion between the government and Twitter. I recently went through the Twitter files to really try to assess them. And I came away thinking that pretty much everything that I saw there seemed fairly benign, seemed like not particularly newsworthy, except there was one thing, one thing that kind of stuck out as potentially meriting closer scrutiny. Okay, so here's this clip from Musk, and then afterwards I'll talk about the extent to which I agree with what he's saying here. The, the, the government itself is not allowed to censor speech. Um, but in, in my view, the government de facto did censor a speech, and there should at least be a case where uh, that is heard by the public. Um, because if the government um, severely coerces uh, you know, a, a platform, a, a sort of uh, coerces the press, um, then I think that is a, or should be a First Amendment violation. Okay, so the allegation there is that the government had breached the First Amendment, that being the part of the U.S. Constitution that guarantees that the government won't interfere with anybody's freedom of speech. And so, yeah, as I said, there's one thing in the Twitter files that caught my attention as something potentially meriting further scrutiny. And this could be what Musk is talking about. He's probably talking in a general way about all of it, like characteristically imprecise as he is. But so there was one thing, right? So with the Biden administration, they were reaching out to tech companies, presumably including Twitter, so in the case of Twitter, they were trying to encourage Twitter to enforce their own policies to essentially combat COVID misinformation. Now, it's understandable why the Biden administration would be interested in this. This was a severe public health crisis and misinformation causes active harm, right, to everybody. So it makes sense that you would want to do what you can to combat it. And I think it's fair enough for the government, and in this case, the White House, to flag up certain accounts and certain posts and to request that Twitter take a look at them and see whether it violates their policies, right? So that should be all right. But the problem is if that starts to look like coercion, and then that could potentially be a breach of the First Amendment. So was there coercion by the Biden administration. Well, we have a couple of screenshots from the Twitter files, and these seem to be internal communications from Twitter staff or between Twitter staff. By the way, for context, these refer to Alex Berenson, who is kind of a COVID contrarian and a peddler of, if not misinformation, then certainly misleading information. So he was one of the guys that I guess the White House was keen to get kicked off Twitter. Okay, so here's, I'll read these out. So this first bit of text seems to be a communication referring to a meeting with uh, some White House staff, I guess. So it says, overall, pretty good. They had one really tough question about why Alex Berenson hasn't been kicked off the platform. Otherwise, their questions were pointed but fair. And mercifully, we had answers. 
Okay, so the phrasing there, they're talking about whoever this was having one really tough question, so exerting a bit of pressure perhaps that could be construed as. All right, but perhaps a bit worse, I'll read this out. This is from another screenshot. I'm not actually sure what this is from, but it seems to be in regards to a meeting with the Biden team. So here's, I'll read this out. Quote, the Biden team was not satisfied with Twitter's enforcement approach as they wanted Twitter to do more and deplatform several accounts. Because of this dissatisfaction, we were asked to join several other calls. They were very angry in nature. Okay, so I'm not sure about the surrounding details. Like, who was it calling these meetings? What was the nature of the discussion that took place? I'm not sure, but based on these screenshots, there is some indication that perhaps the communication from the White House there was borderline coercive in that specifically if the the calls were very angry in nature and they talked about asking tough questions, this is something that might be a no-no. And so Alex Berenson, who this stuff kind of concerns, is actually suing some of the people in the White House. And so we might hear more about this. But yeah, I just want to point this out because it's kind of interesting. But it should be put into perspective, this isn't exactly 1984, like, censorship of speech. This is the government trying to do good by combating COVID misinformation and perhaps slightly putting their toes over the boundaries of the First Amendment. So watch this space. Maybe we'll hear more about that. Maybe we won't. Maybe I'm completely wrong to suppose that this is worth more than a passing interest. But yeah. All right. So the last thing I want to mention is this, I kind of alluded to it earlier, there's this interesting dynamic between Elon and Joe Rogan. So Joe Rogan seems to have a policy of never disagreeing with Elon. No matter how strongly he might oppose his views, he he always seems to shrink from any any disagreement, Uh, which is interesting because Joe's normally not afraid to be confrontational in situations where he has strong views. But there are a few examples from the recent podcast with Musk where Joe seems to kind of retreat from <laughs> from Musk, even though it's, it's clear that Joe disagrees. But the most striking example of this was when Elon expressed something that is totally anathema to Joe and Joe didn't give an ounce of pushback. So first I'll play a couple of clips from previous Joe podcasts just to show how strongly he feels about this. This is his view on pharmaceutical companies being allowed to advertise. Well, the real issue to me that stands out as an example of that is these stupid fucking commercials that they have for pharmaceutical drugs where people are having the best time ever. <laughs> well, you're looking at them and like, how is this is so deceptive? You're, you're showing me like best case scenario, yeah. grandpa running, pushing the bike and the little kids <laughs> laughing and everyone's having the time of their life. Like, oh, I want the time of my life. How do I get in on yeah, that? And- Problem is to be the, if you can advertise. If you can advertise, you can manipulate people and change their opinion based on theatrics, right? Yeah. You have music and people dancing and holding hands and spinning around in a wheat field. Like that is so yeah. manipulative. And we are subject to manipulation. And when it's something that is so important, like making critical health decisions. In 2020, TV ad spending of the pharma industry accounted for 75% of the total ad spend yeah no one has ever like said you've got to trust these people that have the biggest fucking criminal fines in u.s history these people that have been lying to us left and right these people that have 
they've been tried and convicted for lying about the side effects, for lying about the efficacy, whether or not something is addictive. We know that with the opioid crisis. Well, here's the first problem. Advertising for pharmaceutical drugs on television. Yeah. You shouldn't be able to influence people to want to take these drugs that they may or may not need. That should be entirely a conversation between you and your healthcare provider. Problem. I don't find advertising in general to be a problem because I believe generally, if you're intelligent, you should be able to like navigate that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to things like drugs, and especially when it comes to antidepressants and when it comes to th these things that they're advertising constantly on television, constantly on YouTube, just constantly, the yeah. amount of money is so extraordinary that they put into advertising. Okay, so yeah, it's clear Joe feels very strongly about this topic. But now I'll play a clip from this podcast with Elon and just note that Joe doesn't give any kind of pushback to this. So here we go. What do you think? Well, there seems like a, there's a bunch of factors, right? I think one of the big factors is uh, pharmaceutical drug companies allowed to advertise on television. And we're one of two countries in the world that allow that. I actually agree with pharmaceutical advertising provider it is truthful uh, because th there, could, there could be some drug that is helpful to someone, but obviously the claims need to be accurate. Um, so I actually think pharmaceutical advertising, if it is accurate, I think it actually, you know, play devil's advocate here, I think pharmaceutical advertising is generally accurate. Um, I, I think that's actually okay. Yeah, so I don't know. I've seen in the past certain figures being somewhat sycophantic, somewhat bootlicking towards Joe, and so it's interesting to see him perhaps doing the same towards Elon. This is a dynamic I've noticed in the past with, uh, I think Elon's been on Joe's podcast a couple of times now, and it was something that stuck out at me, that Joe seems to have this kind of reverence for Elon. He views him as this kind of genius oracle. <laughs> it's weird, and he, he never gives an ounce of pushback. So yeah, that was interesting. Okay, so we're going to wrap things up here. So just to summarize, what did we see? We saw some brilliant ad reads from one Lex Friedman, that poet, that dreamer, that man with such a soft and sentimental heart. So that was beautiful. That got us off to a good start. And then we glided over to Mr. Elon Musk. And what do we conclude about Elon? Well, okay, we saw that he has a rather immature, a rather callow sense of humor. And that this sense of humor is not just a harmless quirk of his personality, but is actually something that can do real harm, I think. So sometimes his memeing and childish nature can get him into trouble and can cause havoc. So that's something to watch out for in Muck. <laughs> Sorry, Musk. Uh, we also saw that he is full of himself. To put it mildly, Elon Musk is constantly boasting, constantly crowing about his own knowledge. So that's something that looms large in any Elon content that you come across. Some, there's some forms of it which are not so subtle, in which he just tells you that he's the best at something or the most knowledgeable of, about something. And sometimes it manifests in a more subtle way where he's presenting views as though they're his own, kind of taking credit. And what do we learn about Elon's smarts? Well, I think it's pretty clear to me that his apparent genius is very much overstated. So whenever you listen to Elon talking about something that you have some knowledge in, like it becomes clear just how superficial his knowledge often is. 
There were plenty more examples that I probably could have gone for to showcase this aspect of Musk's inadequacy, but hopefully we have gotten the picture. Now, none of this is to say that he's a complete and utter moron, right? He's undoubtedly a successful businessman, and this seems to bespeak at least a modicum of smarts, savvy, right? Has to. But yeah, be careful about treating him like an oracle or something, as Joe Rogan seems to. He is not the mega genius that he was once touted as. And I think that is pretty clear. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, The gaps between my podcasts have been fairly protracted lately. I'll try to pump them out at a faster rate if I can. But for now, I'm going to leave things there. Hopefully you enjoyed and I'll see you again next time. See you later.